So uh, most of you are aware that uh, this uh, last year, uh, beginning in January, February, I took a trip out to West Africa. We took an offering at our Christmas Eve offering to uh, do a well uh, for a village, about 3,000 in Mali, West Africa. And uh, I gave you kind of a, an update, a quick update about that. All we did when we went out there is we spent two or three days drilling the well and we capped it. I want to show you kind of what happened uh, a couple of weeks after that and give you kind of a final report on what took place. Uh, we uh, raised uh, about between twelve dollars and $13,000 to cover all the expenses. So, in other words, we brought water to a village that people had to walk miles and miles and miles to get clean water. Now they have a great source of water, not just for drinking, but for farming and things along those lines. So, um, what I want to do is I just want to walk you through uh, and talk a little bit about these slides, and we'll see how this works. So this uh, slide shows you. So we drilled the well, we capped it, uh, but then we had to have, we, you know, there needs to be a way for we can, we can store the water, pump the water out, things along those lines. So the holes you have here basically are uh, for, the, for the footings, for the tower. You can see the tower is on the uh, back of the uh, truck, and uh, you have to use African ingenuity to get things done in Africa, and it's just very apparent. So what they're doing right now is they're using this truck to pull the tower off that truck onto the footing, and they're going to pull, pull it all the way up until it's in place. So now they've got the tower in place. You can see the water tank up there. Uh, they're securing it. Um, it's, it's taken a number of steps. They had to pour the concrete first. Uh, there's going to be a solar collector. We'll see a quick picture of that. So the solar collector is going to power the pump that's down there pumping the water. The solar collector will pump the water uh, from the well, you can see the cap of the well, up to the tower, and then it'll be a gravity feed down from the tower to spigot. Here's another picture. You can see the footing a little better, and you can see that they uh, are getting it into place. This is the solar collector that they're putting together. So the solar collector will uh, drive the pump. There'll be kind of an on-off switch once the the tank gets full, it'll shut off. If the tank gets down to a certain level, it'll kick back on, so the tank will always have water in it. People can come and just get their water when they need it. So uh, John chapter 4 talks about Jesus meeting a woman at a well, and he says to her, if you ask, I can give you living water. So the people there in that day had, you know, they had water, they had physical water, but they hadn't heard of the living water. And so what they're doing right now is the pastor went out and he is going to share the gospel. He's going to share about the living water, Jesus Christ, because it's one thing to give people physical water so that they can have better health, they can have better crops, they can, you know, do, do better in their health. But one day they're all, we're all going to die, right? And so the idea is how can we help them so that they can live forever and give them living water? So uh, water is drawn to the new well. You can see the water is being poured out. Uh, it's gravity-fed. The pump motor, as I said, is, uh, is driven by the solar collector. And as you can see, it's pretty clean water. Uh, you can see that. There's another picture of it. Uh, the water is clean and cold. Uh, temperatures can reach 100 degrees. Uh, I just checked today to see what the temperature was in Mali, West Africa. It was 108. It's not summer yet there. 
108, okay? Uh, it was about 190 to 100 when I was there. So it's always hot, and it's very desolate. If you look at the ground and around there, is, there's not a lot of stuff thriving there. Uh, this trench is basically where they buried the pipe. They can put multiple faucets off of the tower if they need to. So this village now has never had some water so clean and plentiful, and actually many of the people are saying it's very sweet water, so we're very excited about that. Not only did they share about the living water, but you could see them uh, preparing to show uh, through a projector and a screen that they set up out in the bush, uh, they're going to show the Jesus film. And so the people came and they watched the Jesus film. And if you've ever watched the Jesus film, it talks about the life of Jesus and the story of the gospel. So that's really fantastic. And so I say, Hope Church, you are making a difference for a village of about 3,000 people. That uh, twelve to thirteen thousand dollars, somewhere between there, made a huge difference for this village. They not only got physical water, but they got the living water. And so, thank you, Hope Church, for what you did. Uh, we could not do what we're doing if it weren't for you folks faithfully giving to this church, so that we could do those type of projects. And uh, tomorrow at our congregational meeting, we're going to talk about another partnership that we're going to do within our city. It's going to be a year-long partnership, and we're going to talk about that at our congregational meeting that's going to meet in this room, not outside, because I thought if we went outside uh, tomorrow, we'd probably be throwing snowballs at each other and building snowmen, which is ridiculous, and I can't even believe I'm saying that. But that being said, that's probably the case. But I just want to say thank you so much, Hope Church. Thank you that we touched the other part of another part of the world. It's really another part of the world. It's a third world country, and you gave them clean water. They're going there today. They're going there tonight to get clean water, and they're going to be able to do crops, and you're going to hear more and more about it. And you're going to hear about a church in a few years, a church that grew because a community here thought of a community there and was able to give them physical water, and then they learned about the, the spiritual water, and their whole lives will be changed forever. This is how we make a difference, not only in our world out there, but our world around here. You can hear more about what we're going to do around here tomorrow. But anyways, I wanted to kind of give you an update on that report. So God bless. Yeah, very cool. So we're starting a new series in uh, the, the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be there for a while. It's going to take a little bit to go through and to talk all about. It's a sh one of the shortest Gospels. We'll talk more about that. You've heard the expression, though, second fiddle. Second fiddle, right? Second fiddle is often frowned upon in our culture. Um, if your child comes home and they say their second chair, their third chair, their fourth chair... You go, why aren't you first chair? Why are you second fiddle? Why are you third fiddle? Why? And, and so, uh, you know, I mean, think about it. When was the last time you saw a motivational speech or a, 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 a movie that encouraged you to be second fiddle, second best, a team player, right? Uh, generally speaking, uh, we call second first loser, Right? That's the way our American culture is. You, you need to be first. You need to excel. You need to be the best. And if you're not the best, then eh, we don't really care about you. 
We're going to look at somebody who not only was willing to be second fiddle, but he took great pride in being second fiddle. He was amazing at being second fiddle. He was amazing. And, and so our passage is going to uh, talk about John the Baptist. But John is going to say, but I'm not the star of the show. I'm just the second fiddle. The star of the show is Jesus Christ. So if you'd like to, take your Bibles, open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have these chair Bibles. Uh, find a chair Bible. Mark is in the gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Hold the horse while I get on. That's the order of them. So if you need a quick way to remember the order. Uh, but Mark chapter 1, we're gonna just, I'm going to just read through the first eight verses. And then we're just going to talk about them a little bit. So let me begin uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this weekend, we're going to answer four questions that this passage kind of raises. The first question is this. Why are the gospel accounts different? We have four gospels, and each of the accounts is a little different. The first thing we need to understand is the gospel accounts are not to be understood like we generally do as biographies. They're not biographies. Uh, the gospel writers are not interested in giving a complete biography of the life of Jesus. I mean, John and Mark don't even go into his birth. You have to go to Matthew and Luke to get that. So you, right off the bat, you realize they're not trying to give you a biography. That's the first thing. The second thing is, the gospel writers are writing, they're each writing to a unique audience for a specific purpose. They may be writing about the same person, but they are writing from a different perspective. So we, we would expect their accounts to be a little different. They took material and they put it together in a different order sometimes. Here's the best way maybe I can explain this. If we were all, if, let's say there's four of us and uh, we're standing on four different corners of an intersection. And all of a sudden, there's this horrific crash. And the police officer came to us and said, tell me what happened. You would give an account, an accurate account of what took place, but you would have a different perspective on it than somebody across the way, the kitty corner to you, somebody across the street, somebody over here. So all the four accounts would be the same and similar of the accident, but from a very different perspective. The police officer would look at them and he wouldn't say, well, these contradict each other. He wouldn't say that. He would say, this is just a different perspective. They were able to see things the other person wasn't able to see. And so that's kind of how we need to look at the Gospels. Let me give you an example. 
So, for instance, Matthew was written to, to a Jewish audience to show them that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Mark was written to a Roman Gentile audience to prove that, prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke was written to a Greek Gentile audience to show that Jesus was a man, not a myth. They had a lot of myths. They had a lot of different ideas out there. And what Mark was trying, or what uh, Luke was trying to show was that uh, he wasn't a myth, he was a real man. Uh, John was written to both Jews and Gentiles to show that Jesus is God. He's very clear. I mean, John, you read his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So immediately he's, he's establishing the godness or the deity of Jesus Christ. The third thing to see, see is this. The central focus of the book of Mark is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there's 89 chapters. If you look at all the Gospels, all the Gospels and put them together, there's 89 chapters in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 29 of those chapters deal with the last week of his life. Okay, so 89 chapters, so if you round it off and say 90 and 30, about a third of all the gospel writers are writing about the last week of Jesus. You can see that's the emphasis, right? So uh, it's very important to understand that. Um, the third thing to see, or fourth thing to see, is that Mark, oh, many, most scholars believe Mark was written and probably was the earliest and, and was before the others. Uh, the other thing is, and this is interesting, Mark makes no mention of Christmas. There's no mention of the birth of Jesus. He begins his gospel with, the gospel, with John the Baptist. <laughs> and as I said, uh, he's not the only one that does it. John does the same thing with his gospel. He doesn't mention the birth because for his purposes, it's not important. Now, was it important? Yeah, it's important, but not for his purpose. And so you have to understand that each of these writers had a purpose for what, you know, even John in his gospel says, many other signs truly Jesus did, but I chose these so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, John's saying there were many other things I could have written, but I chose these because these are the ones that I want to focus on so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's why, uh, just very briefly, why are the gospel accounts different? Second question, who was John the Baptist? Who was John the Baptist? So that's a question we need to talk about for a minute. <clears throat> because there's this, this odd description of John. He's walking around with, with his certain clothing and a leather belt, and he's eating locusts and honey, and you go, what in the world is that all about? Well, we know that John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. The, men, uh, the moms knew each other. But uh, John, John is telling us something quite remarkable about Jesus. Now let's talk about his dress. It says that he, he wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, what's the significance of Why are we told that? Because it's, it's, it's an obvious marker to the people who are watching this or listening to this gospel. They know that this is significant, but it's not significant to us because we just don't understand it. Well, it's very significant. How he dressed and what he wore pointed to his mission. This description of Mark in uh, this description of John in Mark uh, 1 verse 6 is similar to that if you read sec write this reference down 2 Kings 1:8. This is the dress of Elijah. Okay? 
This is the dress of Elijah. So the people would have known about the prophet Malachi's uh, prophecy. So um, just take your Bible for a moment and jump to the end of the Old Testament. And the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Okay? Are you there yet? Let me read you a couple of verses. So, so this is the last words of the Old Testament, the minor prophet Malachi. And in chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues of or- and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And then in verse 5, it says this. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So these are the last words of the Old Testament. What he's saying here is the next thing that's going to happen is a prophet from God is going to come. It's Elijah. Okay, that's how the Old Testament ends. Then we have 400 silent years, and we say silent because we don't have any, you know, literature, books. The next words we hear probably are, you know, from the New Testament, the Gospels. And so the people are waiting. Who are they waiting for? They're waiting for Elijah. Well, how did Elijah dress? Well, like John the Baptist. So the people thought, this is Elijah. Now, what was Elijah's mission to be? We'll talk more about this in a minute. The people saw that Elijah was the one who was going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah, the Christ. The one that was promised by all the prophets. So, when John comes and he's out in the wilderness, he's eating and he's dressed like he is. The people look very clearly at John and say, this is what Malachi was talking about. He's dressing just like Elijah. He must be Elijah. And, and you'll read this later on in the Gospels because they'll essentially say, well, Elijah, is Elijah still going to come? And some say, well, is John Elijah? Jesus says, yeah, John was Elijah. And so John is on purpose taking this, this, this persona of Elijah because he's going to be the forerunner of Jesus. Let's talk a little bit about his baptism. John preached a message of repentance in preparation for the coming of the, of the Messiah. Now they had this thing in ancient times and they called it the King's Highway. So the King's Highway was... When a king would, would come to a new area that he had never been or uh, it wasn't traveled upon a lot, he, they would send out these, uh, they called them uh, forerunners. These forerunners would go out and they would level the road. They would build bridges if they needed to build bridges. They would make a path for this king in his chariot to come out to wherever he wanted to go. And so these forerunners were like the the civil engineers of the day, if it were, for the, for, the, for the king. And they would come and they would, they would lower the road where it needed to be lowered. They would raise the road where it needed to be raised. They put a bridge where it needed to be, so that the king would have a smooth road to ride on. And so they were called the forerunners and they were the civil engineers. And so what John is doing here as he quotes Isaiah, he's saying, I'm the civil engineer for Jesus. I'm the forerunner for the Messiah. So, he's the spiritual civil engineer. But he's not preparing a road. He's not preparing a road for a chariot for King Jesus. He's preparing hearts. 
he's trying to soften hearts because there's a lot of hard hearts. He's trying to prepare the soil so that when Jesus comes, he's able to do a work in people's lives. So that's what's going on here. So John dresses like Elijah. He quotes Isaiah saying, prepare, I've, I've come to prepare the way of the Lord, Mark says, that Elijah came, or that uh, John came with that message. Now, it's very interesting too, his message was simple, repent for the Messiah is coming. Now, what happened was when the people repented, when they confessed their sin, the first thing they did was they got baptized. That was just, that was just it. You just did it. So baptism apart from repentance is worthless. Uh, the, two, the two were seen as, as indivisible. In other words, when you, if you repented, you were baptized. When you went out to John, if you repented, you were baptized immediately. You, you, there was no delay. There was no, let me think about it. Let me, let, me, let me check with people. Let me figure it out. No, it was like you repented, you were baptized right there on the spot. They were kind of welded together. And interestingly enough, as you read the New Testament in the book of Acts, notice what happens. Peter's out. He's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And uh, he basically, his, if I could summarize his message, and I'm very <laughs> summarizing it, essentially Peter's message is this. We've been waiting for the Messiah to come. The good news is he's come. The Messiah has come. The bad news is you crucified him. That's his message. And it says, when the people heard this, they were pierced in their heart. And they said, what should we do? And Peter says this. He says, repent and be baptized. Now, the order of that is very important. He doesn't say be baptized and then repent. He says, repent and be baptized. Why? Because repentance is something that you do inwardly. It's, a, it's kind of a turning of your heart, a turning of your soul. It's a turning of your life. It's, 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 a, it's a turning of your attitude. It, it's, 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 it's instead of walking away from God, you repent and you confess your sins and you turn to God. And the outward sign of that is baptism. Baptism is the outward sign that you've repented. And so they were tied together in the early church. There is an importance to baptism, in other words. True repentance requires being baptized. Now, I know that, in, now, in other words, in that day, it was not optional. It wasn't, get baptized, you feel like it. It was, you, you were baptized. It wasn't optional. No one in the first century saw baptism as optional. Now, here's what I want to challenge you with. If you have never been baptized as a believer... You need to ask yourself if you're willing to submit to his lordship in your life. If you don't understand this, you're really not understanding the gospel. The response to giving Jesus your savior your life is not only turning your heart, but turning your life over, and it's baptism. Um... So, we use this three words for be. Believe, cross that line of faith, belong, be part of a life group, and, you know, so you're more connected to a group of people and connected to the local assembly, and then become. Becoming is really, this is a step of becoming. Baptism is a step of becoming. It's a step of be going public with your faith. Now, I mentioned the connection cards uh, when I was uh, just mentioning the, the uh, welcome. 
And I just want to say to you, if you have never been baptized, understand this, that you may think it's optional, and our culture may, and our, I would say even our evangelical culture says it's, it's optional, but not as far as the Bible is concerned. The Bible always sees a Christian, a person who trusts Christ, uh, that repents, is always baptized. There's never an exception to that. Now, one of the reasons we don't baptize infants is they can't repent. They don't even know how to talk, let alone repent, right? And so we do believer's baptism. First you become a believer, and then you are baptized. But, uh, you know, uh, you may say, well, I was baptized as an infant. And I know sometimes in different traditions, Lutheran and Catholic tradition, it has different meaning. But I'm, what we're talking about is what does it say in the scriptures? Because the scriptures are our final authority. And we're saying essentially this. We're saying uh, in my own personal life, I was baptized as an infant. But when I understood what it meant to repent, and I truly understood what it meant to have faith in Christ and give my life to him, I realized the next step of obedience, the first step of obedience, was to go public with my faith, to be baptized. So I was baptized twice, once as an infant. When my parents drove me there and my aunt and uncle stood up for me, and I don't remember anything about it. The second time I went, though, I drove myself. I know what scripture I read. I know the testimony I gave. I know where it was. It was my faith. It was my turning to God. It was my public acknowledgement. If you've never done that, just write your name and not on the card and say, hey, I'm interested when you offer a baptism class, will you please contact me? And I would just say this. If nothing else out of this, if you're still not convinced that this is something that is not, uh, and I think it is, mandatory for a, a, an obedient believer to be baptized, if you don't believe that, if you just come to the class and see what the Scripture says. I've only been able to dip the toe into it right now, so uh, join us for the uh, class. All right, let's talk about John's attitude, because I think this is amazing, too. So John was willing, and I, I started out with this, he was willing to uh, play second fiddle. He understood he wasn't the star of the show. His job was to point people to Jesus. And he saw himself, interestingly enough, as an unworthy servant when he compared himself to Jesus. See, we compare ourselves to others and say, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a really good servant of Jesus compared to them. <laughs> we compare ourselves to Jesus. It might be a little different. Now, interestingly enough, one of the phrases that John used, and uh, when he's John the Baptist, when he talked about himself, he would say, he must, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. I don't find this is the attitude of the Christian church. Have you noticed that? This doesn't seem to be the attitude of the, I don't see people saying, I, 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 so when I just said that, he must increase, I must decrease. How many of you th said, oh, that's my life verse? Oh, that would be a good life verse for me. Most of us didn't jump on that, did we? We want something like, he's going to take care of me. He's my rock. He, you know, he's my strength. But, but, it, but it's not this. Generally, we don't jump on, he must increase, I must decrease. That'd be a good life verse for us to have. That was John's attitude. I like what John Wimber says, and it's in your notes. I'm, I'm just change in God's pocket. He can spend me how he chooses. 
Well, that's deflating, isn't it? I mean, just change. I mean, think about some of us have change in our pockets still, right? And, and we go, you mean I'm just a penny? I hope I'm not just a penny or a nickel. Hopefully a dime or a quarter, maybe a 50 cent piece. But have you ever thought of yourself that way? He must increase, I must decrease. Let's talk a little bit about John's mission. It was to point others to Jesus, and that's our mission, is to help more people know Jesus. John's whole ministry was to be a neon sign to the one he was pointing out to Jesus. See, you, you know, you've seen this where you've gone and you're looking for a hotel, you're going through a new town at night, and you're looking and you see these neon signs and it says vacancy, open, you know, whatever. And then every now and then you'll see one of those signs that's really dramatic and it's like an arrow and it just kind of points. It just kind of like the lights go and there's a pointer right down on the hotel. It's like, that's John. That's what John's ministry was. I'm not the hotel. I'm not the, you know, I'm not the main show. I'm just a pointer. I'm just a neon sign for Jesus. That's my mission. He says this in the text, you read it. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this idea of unstrapping the master's sandals, some servants could opt out of that. It was so lowly that even servants could say, you know what, I don't really want to do that. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. So you could understand, you could see the attitude that John is having here. He's having this, this I'm just a servant. His message was, uh, John's message was, he's coming, the Messiah is coming, therefore repent and be baptized. The emphasis is on the first section, this is the emphasis on the first section of the Gospel of Mark. It's the, the emphasis isn't on John, it's on Jesus. Third question. Who is Jesus Christ? He says this, and some have said this is the title. It's the first verse of Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news or the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Some say, well, that's just the title, really, of the gospel. I don't really think so. Um, the ESV uh, version says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's more literal. So let's just break that down for a minute. Jesus Jesus, meaning that he was a real human being, had a real name. He was a human being. In 1 John 1, it says, we grasped him, we hugged him, we held him, because there were cults out there that said he's just a phantom. He never really took upon himself human flesh, but he certainly did. Uh, the early councils of the church said he was truly made and truly God. He, in other words, he was fully man and fully God. Jesus is uh, Jesus Christ, okay? And some of you thought, well, Christ is his last name. No, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. Christ is a synonymous with Messiah, a synonymous with anointed one. It literally means the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. So Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. That's what they're saying here. Um, this idea of, of, of uh, his his last, it's not a last name, it's his title. And then uh, Mark says, he's the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. He was not created. He existed before creation. He is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, and he is God. 
Uh, you read John's gospel, and very clearly John begins there. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word is God. And then later on, it describes who the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, talking about Jesus. And it says in John 1, 2, all things were made by him. So before the creation of the world, Jesus existed and created the heavens and the earth. So you see that he is not just a man, he is God. He's the Son of God. Last question. Why did Jesus need to be both God and man to bring us salvation? Now, I don't have this verse in your notes, but you, you might want to write it down. I think it would be good for you to do that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So, so uh, Paul is saying something pretty significant here. He is saying that there is only one person who could be the go-between between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. He had to become, uh, he became a man, he came as a man, and we call that the incarnation. And the incarnation just means that God took upon himself human flesh, the limitations of human flesh. So if Jesus is omnipresent, meaning he can be everywhere at the same time, the minute he takes upon human flesh as a baby, he's given that up. And so he's taken, for that amount of time as he was on earth, he gave up that, some of those, uh, those attributes. Uh, but he came as a man. He came in, in the incarnation. Uh, but he, he, why did he come as a man? Why did he need to come as a man? Well, there were many Old Testament promises and prophecies that he had to fulfill. One of, the, one of the main ones is found very early in the Scripture, in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, and verse 3, it says this. And this is the promise that God makes to Abraham. Remember, he says to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless those that bless you. I'm going to curse those that curse you. I'm going to give you land and all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed by you. So somehow or another, and that gets more developed. How is that going to happen? It gets more developed. And then we see the promises to David that his kingdom will endure forever, that somebody from the line of David, somebody from the line of Judah, uh, somebody is going to come and a Messiah is going to come, we read in Isaiah. And so somebody is going to come that's going to bless all the nations. Jesus came as a man to fulfill those pro promises and pro uh, prophecies. But he came to live the, the perfect, obedient life that we can't live. There's never been a person who, is, who has perfectly obeyed God. Never. And there never will be. There is only one person. And uh, the phrase that, uh, that I've used, you've heard me say it, and I didn't come up with it, Tim Keller did. He lived the life we should have lived. Jesus came as a human being, as a man, and he lived the life that we should have lived. Um, the other thing is, Christianity is the only religion that can say that our God has experienced suffering and pain, rejection, all the different emotions that we experience, all the, 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 the 
the a range of emotions, the range of relationships. The, he has suffered more than us. No world religion can say that except Christianity. That our God isn't above us, but he became one of us and suffered more than any of us ever could or ever would or ever will. But he did that because he loved us. So he, he became a man. Secondly, he is God with us. Only God could reach down from heaven to save us from our sins. Um, another verse I don't have in your notes, you might want to write this. Well, this is actually a quote from R.C. Sproul. Here's what he says. He says, in order to bring reconciliation between God and humanity, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, united to himself a human nature. Thus, only Jesus has the qualifications to bring about reconciliation. He represents both sides perfectly. He can represent us because he was a human being, but he can also represent God because he is God. The only one who could bridge the gap between heaven and earth is Jesus. He did this by taking on human flesh. God became man. He was fully human and fully God. And only Jesus could offer himself as the perfect Lamb of God for our sins on the cross. So John saw him, this is, John saw him one day and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Meaning that God, his Father from heaven, sent him on a rescue mission to die. Only Jesus could give his life uh, so that we could live. Only Jesus could give us his perfect righteousness while taking away our sinfulness. Second uh, Corinthians, Paul says this. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5.21 is this. Or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.21. What he's saying is there was a transfer that took place on the cross. Jesus took our sinfulness, and we, when we place our faith and trust in him, we receive his righteousness. So when the Father sees us, he sees the righteousness of his Son on our behalf. Paul goes on to say this in Romans chapter 3. He says, now apart from the law of righteousness, uh, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What I want you to see here, though, is the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. His righteousness is, comes to, on our behalf through faith. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You'll never repay it. It is gifted to us. The minute that you call up, you say to Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, and I need a Savior, and I realize that I can't save myself, that you're my only hope. We're like the criminal next to Jesus said, Jesus, remember me. We just simply put our faith in him. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a transfer that takes place by faith. And all we do is we say, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, I can't save myself. And Jesus says, I'll take your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. It's a transfer. Jesus, the sole mediator between God and man. The perfect mediator. The one sent from God. 
So John comes to us, and he says to us, I'm not the guy, but the guy's coming. I'm just, I'm just not even worthy to, to untie his shoes. But he's the guy. And if you repent, and if you open your heart to him, he will save you. And we're going to look at that message as it develops. Because Jesus is going to come on to the, into the story and we're going to learn about Jesus and how he is accepted and rejected and his whole passion and all of that. But the goal of the Gospel of Mark is for us to see who Jesus is and why he came. So we're going to spend some time looking at that. And we're going to learn lessons. A couple lessons you might have taken today. Maybe you took a lesson about baptism as something you need to do because you just haven't taken that step. You, you've downplayed the importance, but now maybe you see it's important. At very least, you'll say to yourself, I need to get to that class. So you're going to fill a card out and you say, here's my name, here's my phone number, give me a call, I'm interested in baptism. And, you're going to, and we'll let you know when the class is. It may be that you don't like playing the second fiddle. It may be that when you hear that, that, that phrase that John used, he must increase, I must decrease, that doesn't work for you. And maybe you need to say, God, I, I have a big head. I, have a, I don't have a servant's heart. I need you to do a little work on me. I'm okay being behind the scenes. I'm okay for you to be the star of the show and you getting all the glory. Uh, maybe there's a pride thing that needs to be worked on in your life. I don't know. Maybe it's just a simple step of faith that you thought you could save yourself and you didn't realize that you can't and you need a savior. I, I was there. I thought I was, I went to church, I was baptized, confirmation, went through all those steps, uh, went to church every week, went to confession once a month, tried to be better than at least 50% of the people around me, thought I had all my bases covered. And then somebody shared Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I realized, my world was wrecked at that point. I mean, in a sense, I realized that all the work, all that I had tried to do, my, my, by the way, my heart wasn't really into it. But I realized for the first time that I was drowning in sin, and unless Jesus saved me, I was dead. And I gave him my life, and I began a journey with Jesus. And that journey's gone on for a long time. And I will never regret the day that I gave my life to him. The only regret I have is that I didn't know sooner. Because it could have made a big difference probably in some of the areas. But it is what it is. But if you're here today and you're waiting to do it, I guarantee you that just about everybody in this room that's given their life to Jesus, the one thing they would say for sure is they say, I wish I had done it sooner. Don't wait. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for John, who is willing to be the forerunner, the neon sign for Jesus. Help us to remember that that's our role, really, to point Jesus, 
point people to you, to Jesus. We're not the star of the show. You are. Help us to remember what John said and maybe take a word from John. You must increase. I must decrease. May that be our attitude, Father, because it certainly needs to be. We would ask that you would help us with our attitude. And we would ask that you would help us, whatever decision we need to make, that we would do it. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.